Welcome to the Fantasy Canon Podcast, where we discuss the classics of fantasy fiction from yesterday and today. I'm your host, David Charlton. And I'm your host, Chris Whedon. Thanks for joining us. Today, we'll be discussing the short story anthology series, Thieves' World, uh, mainly its origins and some of the uh, the writers that took part in it, but also it's we're going to discuss the phenomenon of the shared world universe. Uh, this will be a special kind of episode, a different type of episode than we normally do. We're not actually going to get into the specifics of any of the stories from the first book, but we're going to talk about it in a in a general way and kind of hope to give you an introduction to the subgenre of the shared world that Thieves' World began in 1979. It'll also change format a little bit in the fact that I will be the interviewer, whereas uh, Dave normally is the one that leads the show. So uh, forgive me for uh, in advance if there's any stumbling or mistimed malapropisms or any of the rest of that good stuff. Well, no, the malapropisms are mine and I mean it, so you're just going to have to deal. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but we're going to have a good time today. This is something that's really a lot of fun. Um, it's something we both came to uh, many years ago, and we both enjoyed very much. So can't can't wait to get on it. I think, um, yeah, we both of us sort of got on this pretty early on too, when it was in its heyday. Um, and I will say that this particular episode um, of all the ones that we've done so far is is making the mo- me the most nostalgic for the type of reading uh, fantasy literature that I, I, uh, I started off doing. Um, I can still remember finding these books with their with the really cool covers, plucking them off the shelf and you know looking at the list of writers on the back and thinking to myself, this is going to be cool. Who are these really funky guys and people on the front cover? Couldn't wait to get them home um, and to start reading these. Well, let's let's start off and give them a, a broad definition of what is a shared world. That is a fantastic question. What is a shared world? Um, to put it as simply as possible, a shared world is going to be a milieu in which a bunch of different writers tell stories using the same settings or characters or set up in some way. Now, Thieves' World is often given credit as creating the genre. And in a very real sense, it did start a phenomenon that could be directly linked back to it. And that lasted for, in its heyday, about 10, 12 years. I think we could challenge the notion that it created it because when we think about shared worlds, um, we have to look at some of the earliest examples of this. That would point us to the Lovecraft mythos. In the you no, know, Lovecraft wrote in the 1920s and 30s, uh, mainly short stories in what would be, come to be called the Cthulhu mythos. Um, I much prefer um, the the term Lovecraft mythos because it's Cthulhu is important in the mythos, but it's not. He's not necessarily central. Uh, there's lots of other stuff going on because he came up through early science fiction fandom where um, stories were published in pulp magazines and um, the uh, the folks who would buy them and read them would send in letters and they would have discussions about the, the stories. Some of those letter writers would 
actually become writers themselves. They would submit stories to the editors of magazines like Weird Tales, Astounding, Amazing Stories. And as the the letter columns in these magazines started to fill up with some really familiar names, you started getting Lovecraft interacting with people like Robert E. Howard or Clark Ashton Smith or Henry Kuttner or C.L. Moore, all of these were writers in the the pulp style, really starting with a genre that we would later come to know as sword and sorcery, some of it as science fiction or cosmic weird tales. And some of these writers would set their stories in Lovecraft's, um, using some of Lovecraft's ideas, some of the outer gods that he would he would bring up, they would would be mentioned in like a Robert E. Howard story, for instance, or a Clark Ashton Smith story. So all of these things were sort of lightly touched on during Lovecraft's lifetime, but didn't really come into fruition until after Lovecraft died. And August Derleth, who was one of the men who took up uh, Lovecraft's uh, lit- literary gauntlet, and he started writing stuff in the what he would consider the Cthulhu mythos. He he would use some of the characters and settings like Lo- Lovecraft's Arkham, the city of Arkham, or Innsmouth, or um, some of the same gods and and uh, entities that Lovecraft referred to. This new Lovecraft circle of new writers, some of which included people who knew Lovecraft when he was alive, like Robert Block, the guy who wrote he wrote Psycho. He wrote an episode of Star Trek, the original series, too. You remember that one? I think it was The Wolf in the Fold, I want to say. The one where Jack the Ripper comes back and Scotty's, uh, Scotty's accused of being a, a killer. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. So that that should give you an idea of what an early shared world looked like. So it's a little different than what would eventually um, uh, be perfected with Thieves' World because these writers weren't working closely together. They were just sort of referencing each other's in, um, work. They would use some uh, similar characters uh, in, in in as much as they would use like the like the Necronomicon, for instance, uh, the the Book of the the dead, um, or they would talk about the Hyborian age that uh, Robert E. Howard popularized in his Conan stories. Um, so, but moving on from that, the next instance of a shared world universe, and Chris, I think I maybe you could talk about this a little bit, is going to come in something that might be more familiar to a broader audience, and that is comic books. Yeah, starting in the night, the late 1930s, but really blossoming in the 40s and 50s, um, comic books came into their own, and they were. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how comic books exemplified a shared world universe, Chris? Um, the great thing about comic books has always been that uh, the stories and the settings that they are put in are basically generic. I mean, there's Monop- Metropolis and Gotham. There's um, a faux New York City and in Marvel, uh, Spider-Man and the Avengers and all the rest of that stuff. But those things were kind of in the future. Uh, In the 30s and the 40s, the genre had not invented itself. It was being invented. So they drew from all sorts of different places and all sorts of different inspirations. It was a generally not a crossover heavy environment. 
it came from a, they mined their stories from shared uh, backgrounds and brought them forward and codified them as DC and Marvel. But it, it was basically a lot of the same people riffing off the same things. So, yeah, yeah. And, and because you know, Chris and I have often come down on two different sides of this, he's always been the bigger Marvel fan. I've always been the bigger DC fan. So I have to bring up the fact that the earliest example of a shared world situation in comics has got to come in 1940 with the introduction of my favorite, the Justice Society of America. These are characters like Flash, Green Lantern, uh, Sandman, Dr. Fate, the Spectre, the Atom, um, Hawkman. These are all characters who had their own stories, some of whom had their own comic magazines, and coming together for the first time to have adventures together. So maybe Marty Nodell is writing Green Lantern and All-American magazine, and uh, William Marston Molson, Mol- Molton is writing Wonder Woman in uh, Sensation magazine, and they come together, and they've got another writer on All-Star Comics, which is the comics that the Justice Society had their stories in. So using the same characters in a shared setting and a situation it was sort of a blueprint for what a shared universe could look like. And then of course, leap forward into the 1960s, you have what Chris described as the flowering of this uh, experiment where you get uh, uh, the, I think they called it the silver age where you got the justice league with Batman and Superman and a, a new green lantern and a new flash getting together on the other side of the, the town. You've, with the Marvel characters, you've got uh, the Fantastic Four, all, all, all of these characters sort of getting together and interacting with the other stable of characters. The Fantastic Four would meet up with Namor, the Submariner, uh, who was already a hero from you know, previous books. Uh, they would meet up with um, the Avengers. I mean, the Captain America came on board in like number six or something like that, or maybe even earlier than that. And uh, you're right. I mean, X-Men, Avengers, and especially the Avengers, because they all had solo books, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, all the rest of them had solo books, but they did all come together in the Avengers. And that was really one of the drawing points. Yeah. All right. So that, uh, that, that brings us to the topic of our show today, which is Thieves World, right? Indeed. So why don't you tell us what Thieves World is, Dave? So Thieves World is, as we said, a shared world anthology series of short stories. Uh, it started in 19... The first book was published in 1979. Uh, it went for 10 years. The last uh, book, which was the 12th book, was published in 1989. Uh, and it really showed the publishing industry how this type of work could be done. Um, now, I said there were there were 12 anthologies over 10 years, but there was there was... Quite a bit more than that. In addition to those 12 anthologies, there were a number of spin-off novels by some of the more popular writers. Um, there was a very early adaptation of the setting for a tabletop fantasy role-playing game by Chaosium, who later would go on, or it actually already produced uh, Call of Cthulhu, um, which is still running today. There w- were graphic novel adaptations of um, the first three, four, or five books, I believe. Um, And then after 1989, it kind of went on hiatus, but then it came back 
about 15 years later, uh, there was a revival in the early 2000s where another, an, like a like a James Mishner esque novel, epic novel, was published by one of the editors and writers, uh, which led to two more volumes of uh, anthologies. And a couple of years after that, there was a a new tabletop fantasy role playing game that was pr- put out. So. Thieves' World in itself is a bit of a phenomenon, aside from what it created, but it it had all of this popularity, it had all of this momentum, it it really featured writers from just, you know, dozens of writers from across all eras of science fiction and fantasy, from the golden age of pulps, right up through uh, certain sorcery emergence in the 60s and 70s, through the the epic fantasy situations of the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. What Thieves' World was, again, when you kind of just boil it down to its simplest definition, is a shared setting in a city called Sanctuary. And this was like a, we, we talk about it in terms of like sword and sorcery. It was like a real gritty, heroic fantasy milieu where mercenaries and criminals stalked the streets at night and wizards and sorcerers did their foul work in the shadows that they would highlight in their stories. Now, other writers could use these characters with the caveat that they couldn't kill them off or essentially change anything about them. They could leave them in a jam, but they they couldn't change what it was that made this character who they were based on how the original writer uh, described them. Now, the overall, the overarching story of Thieves' World is of a backwater city in a rising empire called the Rankin Empire. And the city of Sanctuary had been conquered a couple of times back and forth. It was previously under the auspices of an ancient kingdom called Ilsig. And it's really just a backwater of thieves and roustabouts and cultists and sorcerers all vying with each other for power. There's turmoil between servants of various gods and at one point, there's an invasion of some like alien people, and um, it's uh, for like control of the streets. What was really fun about it, and what I thought in doing some research for this episode, is that one reviewer called Thieves' World D and D for fantasy writers, which I thought was kind of a fun way to describe it. Indeed, and I think that's a pretty apt description. I, I've always found the origin of Thieves' World, Thieves' World, to be kind of romantic. There's just something like fate imbued about it and like i mean because it's its origins are in the love of the genre and from you know people who were foremost practitioners and fans of it um so let's go back chris to uh, a snowy february evening in 1978 uh we're in boston uh, we're at the sheraton hotel at the it's a Thursday night. It's the opening night of BossCon '78, and uh, this was one of those. This was the golden age of those fan conventions where writers and fans and press would get together, and they would they would actually they would have panels and discussions and games, and merchants would sell stuff, and it was just one of those melting pots of ideas and energy, and a lot of stuff came from this. Remember, we talked about how in Lovecraft's day, they would fans would write into the pulps and they would they would have this interaction with the writers of the stories. A lot of this is now going on face to face in these conventions. Um, and there's one guy, his name is Robert Lynn Aspirin. 
And he's an aspiring writer of science fiction and fantasy, but he's also primarily a fan. And he's he's actually at that convention as a fan. He's the fan guest of honor, I, I believe. And, um, and he's having dinner that night before the, the real start of the convention with uh, a writer named Gordon R. Dixon, who was... Gordon, Gordon R. Dixon is one of the giants of science fiction, uh, especially in the, you know, in the early, early days. I think he was probably in his mid fifties around this time. So he'd been around since the forties, fifties and sixties. He's writing mainly short stories. He, he's known primarily for his Dorsey uh, novels, science fiction novels. Um, and he and Asper knew each other from this, um, the Society for Creative Anachronism, where a bunch of people would get dressed up and they would create these get-togethers uh, where they would reenact uh, a, a Middle Ages that never was. And uh, Lin, uh, Robert Lynn Aspirin was sort of famous for being known as Yang the Nauseating. He was the head of uh, like a biker gang of like Mongolian horsemen who one day just sort of took the field and became uh, sort of sort of famous in those circles. So anyway, he, he's sitting down to dinner with Gordon R. Dixon, and he's got a, there's a third person at that table. And that third person's name is Lynn Abbey. She, so I don't know if they were necessarily romantically involved at this point. I don't want to make any assumptions. But the three of them are sitting there. Gordon R. Dixon, very famous published writer. Uh, Robert Asprin, aspiring writer. He's about ready to have... I think he's already had one book published. He's about ready to have another book published, but primarily known as a fan, a guy who who knows everyone, could really have a conversation with all these people. Uh, and then Lynn Abbey, uh, another aspiring writer, but has not yet had anything published. She's got a manuscript in her in her briefcase that she's going to shop around and try to get um, try to get an editor interested in. So they're sitting there at dinner. They're having drinks. They're talking. They're talking about aspirins pet peeve that fantasy writers anytime they wanted to write a story they had to create a world from scratch so they couldn't just pick up in conan's hyboria or fritz lieber's lankmar they just had to start it all create the world like J.R. tolkien did <laughs> and just start going from there but as they were talking they asked themselves a question that imagine the story potential if conan and fafford and the gray mouser had shared a setting and a time frame. If Elric of Melnibonet and Cain, the mystic swordsman, marshaled armies against each other, how fun would that be seeing Moorcock and Carl Wagner's Carl Wagner? I don't know if it's Wagner or Wagner. Anyway, anyway, their characters together in a story. I just think it really started their imaginations flourishing. And the more they started drinking, the more they started really considering the idea. This idea of this shared setting is really setting in. And Aspirin calls it a classic pattern for nearly all contributors to Thieves' World, where he's he would sort of give them the pitch and they would say, I'd love to, but I don't have the time. It's a lovely idea, though. And then a couple minutes later, they just thought of a character who would fit into it perfectly. And then 15 minutes after that, after staring at the nothingness, which they would convert into a smug grin, they would tell them, I've got my story. <laughs> so it was just something that instantly seized on their imagination. Can you imagine just being like the waiter clearing the dishes or someone overhearing some of the conversation at that dinner table that night at the, the Mermaid restaurant in the Boston Sheraton? Yeah, it'd be 
depending on my reading proclivities, I, I might think these people were out of their minds, or <laughs> I might think, damn, I wish I could be involved in that. And I, that's what Lynn Abbey was thinking, actually. Um, now, remember, Gordon Dixon is an established writer, grandmaster of science fiction. Robert Aspirin's had a couple of books either published or on the verge of being published. But Lynn Abbey has not. She has no contract. She's got a book that she thinks is good enough to publish. Um, she's thinking to herself that they're not. this is not something that she could be included in. So she kind of felt kind of bad about that. But they didn't really realize that she had mentally dealt herself out. Um, so the next day, actually, I think, I don't even think it's the next day. I think it's that same night. They're still in the, in the restaurant. They go looking around uh, because there's other writers uh, and editors and publishing people there. They actually pitched the idea to the writer, John Bruner, that very night. Yeah, it was that night. Uh, and John Bruner thought it was a fantastic idea, but he didn't, because John Bruner's English and he didn't have time to write anything. And then almost immediately he thought of a character and he was in. So that was that classic pattern that Aspen was discussing. And that's how quickly this idea develops like a virus, how attractive that collaborative, uh, that thought of that kind of a collaboration is to, to creative people. So it's the next morning now, Chris. Uh, Aspen wakes up, he's hungover, and he's just realizing the size of his, his undertaking. But he's already got a, what he thinks is a commitment of four stories. One from him, Dixon, Lynn Abbey, who he doesn't know has already dealt herself out, and John Bruner. So he goes to the to the con and he's walking around and um, he says he ambushes the writer Joe Haldeman over a glass of lunch, which I thought was a kind of a funny way of phrasing that. I, it gives you a glimpse into how um, these writers spent their time at conventions. So, and by the way, I'm taking this from a number of. Uh, Interviews I have found on like Lynn Abbey's website, Joe Haldeman's website, primarily from the essay at the end of the first Thieves Rolled volume. Okay. So he, he talks to Joe Haldeman, uh, who is famous for his book, The Forever War, which is a uh, classic of science fiction. And um, he, he pitches it to him. And Joe says, terrific idea, but he's got no time. And he's never written historic or excuse me, um, heroic fantasy. Before. So this is something that's a little outside his wheelhouse. But Aspirin encourages him to use his experiences as a Vietnam War veteran to think about it. So that's what made it click for Haldeman. He had his character and Aspirin had another writer and another story for his anthology. So now Pretty we're up to five. So now we're up to five, right. Um, however, this is when he found out that Lynn Abbey had sort of dealt herself out of the project because, you know, she wasn't an established writer. Um, fortunately, like I said, she had her book in her briefcase. She she did find somebody interested in it. Um, and even if she hadn't, um, I'm sure she would have been published in that first volume because Aspirin believed in her work, um, had read it, and thought that uh, it was fantastic. And Turns out he was right. Abby Lynn Abbey turns out to be the most stalwart of all Thieves World's writers and editors. But uh, so, yeah, so we're, we're, we're back to five. So as the con goes on, uh, Aspirin's moving through the crowds, talking to people, finding more folks. And I guess the Sunday, which is the last day of the con, uh, Ace Books, the publisher Ace, through what's called the Dead Dog Party. I guess that's, you know, <laughs> one of the last things you do at one of these conventions. And um, they spoke to an editor and 
Bain expressed interest. He said, okay, you've got five, six stories. Um, if you could fill the remaining slots with authors of equal quality, we will get this published. I like this idea. Let's do it. So Aspirin's floating on cloud nine. He runs into a guy named Jim Odbert um, on the way out, and he, who's an artist, a fan artist, and he commissions uh, Jim Odbert to draw a street map of the nascent sanctuary, the city that they're all kind of thinking of to, to place the setting in. All right, so he's done with the convention. He goes home, uh, but his mind's on fire with that, with this idea. He knows he needs to get more stories, though. Okay, so and he, the first person he calls, he's a longtime fan of this guy, and he's also a fellow con goer. His name is Andrew Offit, and Andrew Offit is uh, he's another one of these uh, pulp writers, science fiction stories. Very interesting character. We'll get into a little bit about Offit a little bit later, a little bit more about him a little bit later. Um, but he essentially tells Aspirin almost in the same breath, uh, I don't have any time, but I'm super enthusiastic about this and I've got my character. I'm in. <laughs> and that enthusiasm would carry Offit through um, the original run of Thieves World. Uh, he would write several spinoff novels and he would come back for the revival in the early 2000s as well. So Aspirin's at his phone. You can imagine him at his kitchen table. Lynn, Lynn Abbey's in the background, banging away at her typewriter, polishing up her final draft for her book that she's going to publish, or maybe even thinking about the short story that she's going to include in it. And Aspirin calls the legendary Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson is another grandmaster of science fiction and fantasy. He's just one of those guys that you you got to think twice before you call him up and bother him. <laughs> he is He was pretty... He was familiar with Aspirin because of their connections in the SCA, the Society of Creative Anachronism. So they knew each other through the Society for Creative Anachronism, uh, where Paul Anderson was Sir Bela of Eastmarch, and uh, Robert Aspirin was, as we've already said, Yang the Nauseating. <laughs> so I got the impression that their encounters weren't necessarily the easiest, but Time passes, he's making calls, he's writing letters, he's going to cons, and he pitches to Roger Zelazny in, uh, at a con in Little Rock, Arkansas, where Zelazny was the pro guest of honor and Aspirin was the fan guest of honor, and Zelazny says he's interested. And then he, and I think this is, um, he doesn't know Marion Zimmer Bradley from anyone. He had a conversation with her once in a hallway at a con in California about like sword fighting, uh, but she remembered him and she said she was interested. Fantastic. Great. He next goes to Philip Jose Farmer, another giant in the field, uh, another grandmaster of science fiction. Um, he calls him on the phone and Farmer's <laughs> Farmer's response was, okay. And then he hangs up. And Aspirin didn't know what to think of it because it seems, I mean, it seems a little, I don't know, vague, but apparently that's how Philip Jose Farmer showed enthusiasm. Um, so, the project is moving along. So some of the principals meet up again at a place at um, a convention. I think it's in Minneapolis called Minicon, where Aspirin finally gets the maps from Jim Odbert that he commissioned. Uh, he and Lynn Abbey and Gordon, Gordy Dixon and um, Haldeman, John Haldeman set up uh, in a hotel room all night, and they just start banging out a history of of sanctuary, history of the city, the general political situation of the continent. And they start talking about some house rules, how each contributor to the project will share a brief description of their character and their short and their story. And then Aspirin as the editor will distribute that to all of the other contributors 
And then anyone else can use anyone else's character as long as they don't kill them or noticeably reform them. So in that hotel room that night in Minneapolis, these these were the rules that were banged out. And then all these questions start coming up as as the packets start going out. Writers start asking questions about like the details of the setting, like the economic structure. What are the names of their coins? Um, what's the law and government in the city like? Tell me about the religion. Who are the gods? Um, so all of these things start coming up and Aspirin starts compiling all of these, making updates to the packet that he's sending out. Andrew Offit, I understand, is the one who came up with the, the, the gods of Sanctuary. And then, then the authors start playing a, a game of, I won't show you mine until you show me yours, delaying their, their uh, submissions until they see what everybody else has done. So basically wanting to know if they need to change stuff or modify or adapt their story based on what someone else has written. So it's we're we're in this frenzy. Aspirin is talking to Ace Books and um, the editor at Ace, and um, they're they're getting really anxious to get this book because it sounds fantastic. He, they're excited about the talent that he's got lined up, and then some stuff starts going south for Aspirin. <laughs> Gordon Dixon, uh, who was the guy at the table that very first night, drops out because of his time commitments. He's not going to be able to get a story in. What is interesting is that Gordon Dixon's character uh, that he created for the story, Jamie the Red, will show up in Thieves' World. And in fact, written by a different writer, um, Paul Anderson, as a matter of fact, who was a collaborator of Gordon Dixon. But as a matter of fact, Gordon Dixon would write a spin a Thieves' World spinoff novel about Jamie the Red, even though Dixon never wrote for Thieves' World itself or had a story published in any of the Thieves' World anthologies. So I thought that was kind of an interesting bit of trivia. I think it would have been fun to see a Roger Zelazny story in Thieves' World, but that just never came to be. So he's getting, Aspirin's getting nervous. He's got two of his heavy hitters telling him they, he can't have a story. So the editor, Jim Bain at Ace Books Calls, tells Aspirin, if he can get the manuscript in three months earlier, they will make Thieves' World their lead book for that month. And they'll authorize a second volume in case some stories come in late. So... That's fantastic. Aspirin's on cloud nine. He's He's got a lot of momentum, but he's just had some setbacks. <laughs> um, at this point, when he gets this information, Philip Jose Farmer calls and he says he can't come through with a story after all. He's going to be, it's too late. He's got too much going on. That's, that's another heavy hitter that's out. Marianne Zimmer Bradley calls and she tries to withdraw, but Aspirin pretty much says he begs her not to. He says, look, you can't do this. Your character is on the cover of the book. And she actually dashes off a story, I think, in like a week and gets it sent off to a minute. Like it arrives just in time. But that still leaves him a little short. So uh, what he does is that uh, he, t and he tells the editor, Jim Bain, this, that he's had some folks um, kind of come up short. Bain says, okay, well, if you can come up with one more of equal quality, then even if it's not an established writer, we'll put we'll put that writer in. And it turns out they've enlist they enlist a woman named Christine DeWeese, who has not been previously published, um, but it's a writer that both um, Robert Aspirin and Lynn Abbey had been encouraging and doing some critiquing for. And somehow this writer, Christine DeWeese, got permission from Marianne Zimmer Bradley to use Marianne Zimmer Bradley's character, uh, uh, Lathandy in the story uh, and Christine DeWeese comes up with something in record time. 
Uh, they've got all of the stories they need. Aspirin's happy. I think they, uh, is there seven stories in that first volume, Chris? If you'll hang on a second, I will check. It's right here behind me. John Brunner, Lynn Abbey, Paul Anderson, Andrew Offit, Robert Asprin, Joe Haldeman, Christine Dewees, Marion Zimmer Bradley. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So I just, I, I felt like that, that whole origin story of These World is fantastic. It's, it's published in 1979. It's an instant hit. It's a bestseller. Aspirin has already been given assurances that they can do a second volume. So he already starts um, gathering stories for the second volume. And as he's doing that, um, stories from people um, that were too late to get it in for the first volume start coming in. Um, specifically, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, David Drake, and A.E. Von Vogt both get stories that were uh, intended for the first volume um, into the second volume. So fill, filling out that second volume as as well. Now, there's some, some remembrances by some of the other people that started that I wanted to kind of go over as well. In, in the Thieves' World anthologies, sometimes there would be afterwards where one of the editors or lead writers would talk about some inside baseball stuff. In one of the volumes, it's Andrew Offit, again, who was there since the beginning. Um, he was the one who remembered that uh, the first Thieves' World writers' packets went out almost immediately after that initial dinner in February of 1978. And then he, he kind of talks about some of his um, earliest memories about how John Bruner, uh, right at that first convention, outlined a logical magic system that they should all use, and especially around his character sketch of the wizard Enos Yorl, that everyone pretty much basically ignored. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about this, by the way, is that in doing research, I have found, even though Andrew Offit, who was there from the beginning, says it was John Bruner who outlined the magic system, um, a later stalwart of Thieves' World, Robin Wayne Bailey, remembers that it was Alfred Bester, uh, who was another uh, grandmaster of science fiction pulp writer. Um, I tend to think, and I, I tend to believe that it was John Bruner that did it because Offit was there from the beginning. Robert Wayne Bailey comes in a little bit later, fourth or fifth book, I think. And Alfred Bester, the guy who he gives credit to, didn't really have any connection or involvement with Thieves' World. So I'm, I'm inclined to believe it was John Bruner. John Bruner, by the way, only had a story in the first volume, and I think he had one in like the fifth volume, and that was it. It was uh, Andrew Offit who suggested that the title of the first book should be Tales from the Vulgar Unicorn, which I think is a great title. But yeah. uh, And it's one they saved for the second volume. But how, how about that cover? It's it's pretty interesting. Excuse me. One of the neat things I found looking at uh, looking at the cover the other day when I started reading this, let's say it's a very generic close-up of a... An inn with just a few people sitting around it. Uh, there's a a man with a tray serving drinks back behind it. Uh, the the people who are populating the front cover here are a mixture of very tough looking as well as uh, very shadowy as well. I don't know the little bits of detail that go in there. There's a coat of arms uh, on a shield with uh, the aforementioned vulgar unicorn on it. Um, Why is you can it vulgar? See really isn't to be honest with you it's just a a unicorn rearing back on its hind legs but uh i would expect um 
that it was probably called something different than they and because of the clientele who gathered there it became the vulgar unicorn so well actually i in this in one of the stories they can't depict this in art on the cover cuz you wouldn't be able to you know show the book <laughs> but in one but in one of the stories in the first volume it does say that the picture of the unicorn the picture is of a unicorn improbably engaged with itself <laughs> so I I I don't know what that means, but the imagination boggles. Yeah. Did you know this cover has a name? No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. the The name of this cover, and it was it was given by um, Robert Asprin, <laughs> um, is "You're in the wrong place, sucker." <laughs> well, as every person on the front cover of this book is actually staring at you as you're looking at them, I could see where that would be apt. Yeah, and it's not a pleasant stare either. <laughs> no, it's not friendly yeah. at all. We'll we'll cover the cover in a little greater detail when we get to um, next episode when we actually start talking about the stories. Um, we'll talk about who's depicted on the cover um, and a little bit more about it. But um, one of the one of the weird things about Thieves World is that the cover artist, his name was Walter Velez. I think he did like the first five or six, uh, and then in I think it was with book. Four, five or six, they started it with a new artist and a new cover dress. So you've got this kind of traditional medieval fantasy cover with the first five books, and then it becomes real glittery, glitzy, 80s, kind of dreamier looking covers. And they're they're it's actually they're they're both fantastic. Um, but it's kind of like a jarring change. Ace, the publisher, did go back and create new covers for the first ones, replacing the old art. So we'll we'll kind of cover that those individual covers as we go through the books, but I just I thought I would I would mention that here since we were talking about it. One of the things that Andrew Offit talks about uh, in his essay uh, is the camaraderie and the love of the team of writers uh, writing for what he says is a nickel a word. Um, he just remembers everyone as a one big happy family. It was a really good experience for Andrew Offit. He specifically calls Lynn Abbey unreconstructably lovable and you can tell he he seems to that that comes out in their writing they 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 all do use each other's characters um not always kindly or easily there's an affection that you can derive from what they're doing there one of the other writers that is prominent in the series her name is uh, cj cherry uh, she's a another grandmaster of science fiction. She is uh, one of, one of their heavy hitters. She didn't actually start with Thieves the first volume or the second. I think she actually comes in in the third volume. Uh, but from the third volume onward, she's another stalwart. She came back for the the revival as well. She um, she said she calls this Aspirin's maxim. She says you write your first Thieves World story for pay. You write your second for revenge. Um, I, I thought that was a an excellent way to um, showcase what these writers were, how these writers were playing with each other. So you would uh, you would write your story. You'd include somebody else's character. You put them in a jam. Then they would write their story, get their character out of the jam, and put their the, other, the first writer's story character into a jam. It would just it would just be like one of those really playful sort of things. And the benefit was is that the reader got a really fun uh, book out of it. She said, revenge is part of what makes it work. Partnerships and pair-ups. 
She and her, the way she got involved was actually pretty interesting too. It was at another convention. And by the way, I'm taking this from an essay at the back of another one of the Thieves World anthologies. And Cherry says that she was in a, on a panel with Robert Asprin and they were talking about Thieves World and what made it so fun. Asprin was like, well, if it's so, if it's so fun, why did you turn me down? Why won't you write for Thieves World? And she kind of looks back at him and says, you've never asked me. And apparently it just slipped his mind that he had not asked CJ Cherry to do that. Uh, so he did. He put her on the spot right there and then and kindly asked if she would. And she accepted and she was involved in every volume since then. Well, when you're using a rotary phone, you don't have the luxury of having a you know previously called list on your phone. So yeah. it must have slipped his mind. Yeah. Yeah, true. Um well, and, and this is what Cherry says in her essay. She says, writing is a profession practiced in locked rooms and manic solitude. Rarely do writers get the chance to practice their art in groups or to write each other's characters or to interfere in each other's plots and plans. So part of this, the success of Thieves World is that it's a challenge and a new kind of art form for the writers. Aspirin and Abby have invented an entirely new literary form and an environment which has regularly surprised even the seasoned participants. So I think that nicely captures the fun of it. Indeed. And for somebody that has to do this for a living, it's got to be it's got to be great to have something novel to to approach your writing process. I mean, people are so inside their heads when they write these things. I have to imagine that having to take someone else's uh, characters into consideration and a list of rules of what you can and you can't do that has to fire the imagination in some way. Yeah, right. It might get you out of like a writer's block or uh, create new ideas for you for sure. There was a uh, an interview that um, one of the early internet writers did with Lynn Abbey back in 2002 when the revival was happening. And the interviewer asked, and, and again, Lynn Abbey, but for all intents and purposes, she was there at Aspirin's side doing the work. She, was, um, she would eventually be credited as co-editor, and she currently owns the rights to the property and um, would be the sole editor moving forward. But anyway, she was asked by this, by this interviewer, what do you perceive as some of the weaknesses of the Thieves World series? And she said, our strengths and weaknesses were nearly identical. Bob, that's Robert Asprin, Bob and I had created a milieu wherein our authors spent as much time conspiring with one another as they did writing their stories. Over time, this meant that we published fewer stories that were complete in and of themselves, and many, perhaps too many, never really came to a satisfactory conclusion. The politics, both among the authors and between their characters, became tangled, with C.J. Cherry's observation that you write your first These Roll Story for Fun, the rest for Revenge, becoming more and more true with each passing volume. Um, most readers seem to like that never-ending conflict, but politics is not sword and sorcery, and Thieves' World, at its best, was down and dirty sword and sorcery. It's fine, because you could imagine like Andrew Offit calling up Janet Morris, who was a, uh, a writer who started with the second volume, talking about how they were going to intermingle their characters and their stories, which they did a lot in those early volumes, particularly in the second and third volume. Offit's character, Shadow Spawn, uh, got involved with Morris's character Tempest quite a bit, uh, and each of their stories were informed by those situations. So, I mean, you could just sort of see how 
intertwined these writers became with each other and how interested they were in each other's characters. Well, that that leads me to think that with the success of Thieves World and with the firing of the imagination of these people and the absolutely fanatical fandom of some of these things, were there any attempts to try to recreate it somewhere else, different publishers or something along those lines? Oh, there's a whole history of it. Um, and the earth, and thank, good question. Great question, Chris. <laughs> the, uh, Just read whatever's written. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the immediate spinoffs really starts in the early early eighties. Remember, Thieves World was born in nineteen seventy eight. The first book was published in seventy nine. Uh, in nineteen eighty one, Chaosium, the role playing game company that created Call of Cthulhu, RuneQuest, um, they came out with the Thieves World uh, role playing game. And what's kind of cool about this is that it is compatible not just with um, like the like basic role playing rules, um, but also Dungeons and Dragons, um, like the Red Box D and D, eight advanced Dungeons and Dragons, the Gary Gygax you know, orange binding hardcovers, uh, Rune Quest, Tunnels and Trolls, Traveler. Um, I think there's like nine different RPG rule, rule systems that Chaosium made this this uh, game compatible with. They brought in designers of a, a, a murderer's row of designers, including Dave Arneson, who is credited as the co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons, Steve Perrin, who created Chainmail with Gary Gygax, Ken St. Andre, who created Tunnels and Trolls, which was the earliest of the D&D competitors, Raymond Feist, one of your favorites, Chris, I know. Um, Indeed. Yeah, Raymond Feist would later go on to become a pretty popular fantasy writer on his own. But at that time, he had McKemia Press, which was originally designed to produce role-playing game supplements. But the, this uh, uh, boxed set of the Thieves' World role-playing game uh, is considered one of the holy grails of uh, RPG collecting. Um, they had a, a player's guide, a game master's guide, a map of Sanctuary, and then like a detailed map of the maze and some of the underground networks. Some of the, the Thieves' World writers contributed descriptions and short essays uh, to the role-playing game. Uh, and it won the Origins Award for the year that it was produced, which is like the, the Academy Award, basically, at Gen Con for um, role-playing games. Um, so it was super well-received. Did, did you ever see it or play it, Chris? I can't say as I played it. I know for sure I never played it. But uh, at that time, I was furiously pouring over any bookstore, toy store, comic book store that had any kind of uh, role-playing anything. So I'm sure while I've never played it, I have seen it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've i had it. In fact, I've had it until fairly recently. And I had a great copy of it too. I really regret it. I sold it on eBay for like a hundred bucks. Oh yeah, and that was cheap. I probably You could probably get it um, for three, 400 bucks right now if you went looking for it on the secondary market. I, you know, it, it just, it was um, one of those things that I thought I would never get back to. And I, my, my, the space I have is so limited at this point, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, your wife and all the animals have to climb over piles of books and old RPGs. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but, um, and then shortly after the, uh, the role-playing game came out, uh, Robert Asprin and Lynn Abbey collaborated with Tim Sale uh, to do a graphic novel series. And this is in the, the mid eighties and they just called it thieves world graphics. There were six volumes that collected stories from uh, the first three anthologies, 
Thieves World, Tales from the Vulgar Unicorn, and Shadows of Sanctuary. Uh, you know who Tim Sale is, Chris, the illustrator? Um, if I saw his work, I probably would, but by name, I do not. He did. Uh, he famously did those Batman Long Halloween. I think was the one that he did for for Batman. He did some, oh gosh, Spider Man, I believe, for Marvel. Tim Sale is a fantastic writer, artist. Uh, he recently passed away um, as well. But this is some of his earliest work uh, on the the Thieves World graphics. But uh, you know, he became a legend in the in the industry. And this is sort of where he got his start. Um, you can get these for some pretty good prices on the secondary market now as, as well. I just saw all six of them on eBay for like 50 bucks in really good, like new collect, uh, like new condition. And I missed the auction. I was watching it and then I forgot about it and somebody snatched it up for like, Oh, I'm so mad. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you were. Yeah, yeah. But is there is there any way to uh, <clears throat> excuse me? Is we've already decided that there's been a spinoff as far as RPGs are concerned. Was there any kind of uh, novelizations by uh, other companies where they took the idea and ran with it, or even better, was there any kind of uh, move to say, hey, we'd like to do this and we can't get in with you, so can we write something of our own and base it in your world? Well, absolutely there was, and that is what we call the the shared world phenomenon that started from here. And we'll get, we'll get to that in a second, um, but I do want to talk about um, the spinoff novels that are happening at the same time as the anthology is going on. So while Thieves World is a running concern from 79 to 89 with the short stories coming out, some of these popular, some of these writers are taking their popular characters and taking them out of Sanctuary and spinning them off into their own novels. For instance, the first to do it was Janet Morris, and she took her very popular character of Tempest and uh, wrote... Originally, there were three novels. They were called Beyond Sanctuary, Beyond the Veil, and Beyond Wizard Wall. Uh, but that she would later go on to write uh, a dozen more using this character. And the first three novels are fantastic. The later ones are really, really good, too. So I would absolutely recommend that anybody who was interested in the, the character of Tempest uh, and the Stepsons, which is the elite mercenary group that he led. Uh, and then there's Marion Zimmer Bradley. She wrote, well, she compiled... A, a novel based on the short stories that she wrote about her character, Lathandi. Now, Chris recently sent me a text message with a picture of this very book. Indeed. Where'd you dig so, that up? Uh, well, uh, it actually was in the used bookstore in the town we lived in together down in uh, Florida. I used to haunt that place often uh, shortly after I moved down there. I found a whole bunch of great stuff down there, stuff that I would never have actually jumped into. But um, I had already read Thieves World by that point, and Lithandi was one of my favorite characters. So when I saw that MZB had a standalone novel, I snapped that sucker up. I think I paid, I think the sticker on the front says $1.75. <laughs> Nice. Well, the thing, it's not a novel. It's actually a book of short stories. It's a fix-up novel is what they call them. So what she did, Marion Zimmer Bradley wrote, I don't know, 15, 20 Lathandi short stories over the course of 20 years or so and published them in various magazines. But only one story, the very first one, was ever published in a Thieves World anthology. She took the character and sort of ran with it in different settings and situations. 
it's it's interesting because she was uh, Bradley was such a draw for the series, and the character is on the cover of at least the first four or five novels uh, anthologies that the character only shows up in one story, uh, written by the creator of the character. But but you you asked about um, the the shared world phenomenon, and I, I think it's a great question from Thieves' World. With Aspirin and Abby showing the publishing industry how fun um, and how profitable this type of venture could be, other projects sort of grew up like weeds at this point. Uh, and we're we're going to talk very briefly about some of them. We're not going to go into too big a detail, but they just started popping up like crazy. And a lot of the, the creators of these projects were folks who either worked on or were connected to Thieves' World in some way. Um, and the the first one, and the one that I find most closely related to it, is the Heroes in Hell series, um, edited by Janet and Chris Morris. Are you familiar with that one, Chris? I am not. Okay. So this this is one of my favorites. This is one that I've got all of the books of, and it's it ran for twelve volumes. And when I give you these this data, you're it's just going to boggle the mind. Um, it only ran for three years, from 86 to 89. 12 books were put out from 86 to 89. In those four publishing years, that's a, an a enormous amount of input. The idea behind it is it's, it's called a Bangzian fantasy. A Bangzian is based on the work of a guy, in the an English writer, I believe in the 18th century, uh, named Bangs, who wrote stories that took place in the afterlife. And the conceit about heroes in hell is that every character in history, whoever lived and died is in hell and they're all mixing it up together because heaven is, you know, everybody was too, too bad for heaven. So they all went to hell and heaven is not as interesting to tell stories in apparently. <laughs> as anyone who's read Piers Anthony in his last two Xanth novels there or the yeah. incarnation of immortality. Yeah. But you would really dig this series, I think, because what I mostly remember about it are characters like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great going up against each other for control of like, you know, downtown hell um, with you know, <laughs> town hell. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a, like an urban landscape of hell where I remember like central park had the Viet Cong popping up out of the grass, sniping at people and where Caesar had a penthouse on fifth Avenue and in hell as he should, as he should. Um, but this, the series had some uh, really great, right? Some of the thieves world, Writers that contributed to it were, um, well, Janet Morris and Chris Morris themselves. They're a husband and wife married team. Uh, C.J. Cherry wrote extensively for the Heroes in Hell anthologies. David Drake, Robert Aspen himself, Diana Paxson. I, th- I don't know why Lynn Abbey never wrote for the Heroes in Hell series. I'm surprised that she didn't. I wonder, maybe I just missed that. Um, but other notable writers that wrote were uh, Robert Silverberg is another grandmaster of uh, science fiction with the Magipore Chronicles, but his story, his contribution to Heroes in Hell, it's called Gilgamesh and the Outback, which is Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Actually, Gilgamesh searching for Enkidu, I believe, with uh, Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft sort of following him around, trying to be his minders. That won, I believe that won the Hugo and the Nebula Award for the year that this book was put out. Very impressive. Yeah, I actually have a personal story attached to this. You want to hear it? 
I would love to. So about 10 years ago or so, uh, and they're self-publishing it. Uh, they've, they've put out another, I don't know, maybe 12 books, um, uh, self-publish another 12 books. Uh, I was I'm, I was a fan, and I interacted with Janet Morris a little bit on um, social media. And at the time, I'd had a, a short story published myself in a, uh, a heroic fantasy quarterly, an online magazine. A paying, I got paid for it. I got paid a hundred bucks for my story, uh, and it was late. Yeah, yeah, and it was later selected for their annual best of volume, which they publish traditionally. Publish it comes out like a hard, like an actual physical book. And my story was in that. I don't know if I ever told you that. We're going we're gonna to stop here for a half a second because I'm about to excoriate you. Damn it, son. How come you did not fucking tell me that? I don't know, it was about uh, seven, eight years ago. Maybe longer, actually. Really? Um, you fucking yeah. get a story published and you don't think to tell me? <laughs> I should have. You know, maybe I did and you just don't remember because you're old. Oh. Yeah. How old are you, Dave? Uh, 11 months younger than you. What's the number? How old are you? How many years? 52. Yeah. And how old am I? Well, you'll be 52, 52 for another two months. 52. Two months. <laughs> Three, dickhead. Three. Uh, June, July, August. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So anyway, uh, Chris just yelled at me off, off, off camera. So. But anyway, so I was talking to Janet Morris and she she had, I don't know if I had told her about it or if she had seen it, but she invited me to try out to have a story um, published in her revival of Heroes in Hell. So I I did. I worked up a, um, a, a proposal. I think she, I don't remember. I got the contract, like the, like the packet, the little commission where they say, you know, this is the, pro- the property of the publishing company or whatever. I never finished it, so it wasn't ever published in any of the new anthologies. But I do want to tell you, because I thought it was fun. The conceit was Ricard Wagner, the composer, the guy who wrote the the Ring Cycle, the Ring of the Nibelung. He's in hell because that's where he belongs. <laughs> but he's commissioned by uh, the Pope Alexander IV, the, the Borgia Pope, Rodrigo Borgia, uh, who's also in hell because that's also where he belongs. But he's commissioned by that Pope to write a um an opera for the lucifer's jubilee or whatever celebration it was so you know wagner's been out of it as part of his punishment in hell he was in a place called the pits or the i don't know what it was the chimes maybe or he's in a place where it's all just banging bells where he can't concentrate he can't compose music in his head so that that's been his punishment since he died but he's dragged out of it and he's by Rodrigo Borgia. And he says, okay, write this piece of music for Lucifer's Jubilee. So he goes off and he's trying to figure out how to do this. And his he gets in a cab to be shown around you know, downtown hell. And the cab driver, and I feel guilty about this because I love this guy, but the cab driver is Groucho Marx. <laughs> and, I, and I only wrote the two scenes of the story. I only wrote that first scene with Wagner and Borgia talking about the commission and the scene of Groucho Marx driving Wagner around downtown hell. And it's a crazy cab ride, as you can imagine, with you know Groucho doing his Groucho thing. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to brag, but I think I captured some of Groucho's personality a little bit in that conversation. And the gist of it was going to be that he was going to take him to um, like the Cotton Club and he was going to meet some jazz singers and he was going to get involved in them. And ultimately, Wagner would... Um, 
would get his comeuppance because he was a jerk. And I should, and I say this um, with the attention of actually Corinne, my wife and I are going to see uh, uh, the Florida orchestra do the ring without words, which is about a two hour production of uh, Wagner's ring cycle on Saturday, tomorrow. We're going to go tomorrow to see that. So I'm a fan of Wagner's work, but the dude was just a terrible human being. We're, we're going to get, into that conversation of how you separate the art from the artist when we talk about Marianne Zimmer Bradley next episode, I think a little bit. But anyway, Indeed. so that's my story about my connection to Heroes in Hell. Maybe one of these days I'll finish that story. All right, so um, the the um, we'll go through these kind of quick, but I just kind of wanted to give you a, a flavor for the um, amount of shared world anthologies that sprung up with the success of Thieves' World. Uh, Leavec City of Luck is the next one, uh, and that was edited by Emma Bull and Will Shetterly. Uh, these were folks who were on the uh, cutting edge of like urban fantasy as well. Uh, Emma Bull's War for the Oaks is one of the seminal foundational texts of urban fantasy. Uh, but this was a series that ran five volumes uh, from 85 to 90, none other than Orson Scott Card. And again, this is another guy that we could talk about um, separating the art from the artist. But anyway, he said that this book is an example of a shared world where everything goes right. So whereas, you know, Thieves World, you could look at it and it's an experiment and everybody's trying something new for the first time. Some of these creators and writers are looking at it and they're trying to perfect it and fine tune it. What's cool about Leavec is that it was notable for the amount of diversity and LGBTQ plus characters that they put in it. And this is uh, the setting is very similar. It's a fantasy setting of a hot bustling trading city where people have luck magic. Now, I don't, I don't really know what that means. I never actually read any of the Leavec anthologies. Did you read any of those, Chris? I have not, no. Um, the only Thieves' World writer that contributed to Leavec was um, Stephen Bruce, who wrote um, – well, we might do uh, Jerig for the, the show somewhere down the line because it's fantastic. Uh, but he, he actually – he wasn't one of the original Thieves' World writers. He came back for the – for the revival in the early 2000s. But some of the, listen to this slate of writers that they got for this project. In addition to the editors, Gene Wolfe, Jane Yolen, Robin Hobb, Charles DeLint, Charles Saunders, uh, Alan Moore, the comic book writer, Alan Moore. So there's some really great uh, people who contributed to this. Do you know who Charles Saunders is, by the way? I might. Charles Saunders is, uh, he's created, he's credited with uh, like an Afrocentric version of Sword and Sorcery. He wrote a book called Amaro, which is a character, a black character that's um, uh, kind of like along the lines of Conan. Uh, but I feel like he really should have been one of the writers on Thieves World. I think he could have written an absolutely killer Thieves World story. It's a pity that he, um, he didn't get the opportunity to do that. I think he's recently passed too. I'm sorry to hear that. I'll have to search that out. Yeah. One of the cool things about Leavec is that the editors have provided, which is essentially like a creative commons license for the for the setting where you could write your own Leavec story and, and publish it. I think that there was like a threshold. You couldn't make more than like $3,000 um, on the work. But I thought that was kind of cool of them to do that. All right. Mo moving on, uh, another anthology, Shared World Anthology series was... Uh, called Magic in Ithkar. Uh, and it just so happens, Chris, uh, yes. that I found this book. I don't know if you could see it. I'm holding it up to my camera. There you go. Hang on and I'll look. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, yep. There we go. Yeah. yeah. I found this book at a used bookstore a week ago. <laughs> if you can believe no it. Yeah. And this is uh, another, this is by uh, Andre Norton, uh, one of the grandmasters of science fiction. And Robert Adams also co-edited this book with her. Uh, Robert Adams, famous for Watership Down. Uh, it only ran four volumes from 85 to 86. So a lot of, a lot of stuff in that short period of time. Um, one of the, th- the only Thieves World writer that contributed to this one is C.J. Cherry, but it had, it had, in addition to Adams and Andre Norton, Lynn Carter, who was famous for developing sword and sorcery as a genre, uh, Joe Clayton, who's still writing today, Morgan Llewellyn, who wrote a lot of like Celtic infused fantasy in the eighties, uh, AC Crispin, who's famous for like star, star Trek, star Wars novels. She wrote a couple of V novels, Tanya Hoff who wrote a lot of early urban fantasy, still writes today. Um, Mercedes Lackey, who we've already covered on the show. Timothy Zahn. Um, So these are big name writers that are really getting in on on the action on these shared world anthologies. I didn't read any Magic in Ithgar. Um, I only found out, I've known about it almost from the beginning, but I only really found out more about it while I was doing research for this episode. And I was happy to find this first volume in a used bookstore just last week. So that was kind of neat serendipity. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also have been aware of it since the beginning as well. It's not something that has piqued my interest, but uh, yeah. one of the great things about this show is is I, you have a much wider uh, base of read novels, whereas most uh, most of uh, the authors, I know who they are and maybe what they've written, but now I've got an opportunity to go back after hearing what you've had to say and uh, you know maybe dive into them. Sure. Yeah. Well, my my youth was misspent. While you were out playing baseball in Little League, I was on the bleachers reading Thieves World, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for making my misspent youth sound so wholesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I could tell stories, but we won't go there. (laughs) Other stories. All right. All right. So um, another shared world anthology, which I thought was really cool. It's a little different, but um, do you remember ElfQuest, the the comics, the independent comics by uh, Wendy and Richard Peeney that came out in the late 70s, early 80s? Uh, ElfQuest was my jam, dude. If, yeah. if I was ever to get into any other kind of shared world that we've covered so far, that was definitely my thing. I had all four of the um, trade paper, uh, trade paperback uh, comics that they had put out and they yeah. were, they were absolutely one of my gold, my gold standards. And I lent them out to somebody. I don't have them anymore. And I'm very mad at myself about that. Uh, it sucks. Yeah. I think yeah, those... your brother has them to be honest oh, with you. He, he does not yours. Um, but... uh, are you sure about that? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not sure, but he definitely has them. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that if they're yours or not, but he, he's, he, that's also his gem. He was nuts for ElfQuest, and they were those old Starblaze was the publisher. Starblaze Graphics, which by the way, Starblaze also did those Thieves World graphics. Oh, uh, did they? Talked about, yeah, that's the same publisher. But yeah, they did those original first four volumes, uh, and it was a comic. It was published in like the, you know the floppy issues, and they were collected in those original graphic novel collection volumes. Um, and ElfQuest has expanded ever since. There's been dozens more stories, um, all by Richard, mostly by Richard and Wendy Peeney. Uh, but these are these elves are real like lusty elves. There's um, and that's one of the reasons I think why my brother liked it because <laughs> um, uh, they uh, 
Wendy Peeney is a great artist and uh, she yes. didn't a whole lot to the imagination and when she dressed some of these characters. <laughs> um, um, but they were, this is primarily a graphic story, um, but they did come out with five volumes of a shared universe in the ElfQuest series where writers would take some of the fantastic characters like Cutter or what, what was this? Star Skywise. Skywise was the other. Skywise. Yeah. Um, some of the other tribes of elves, their kids. Um, and they would tell stories about them in these in these um, five volumes. A sixth volume was planned, but it never got published. But it lasted a long time. They, they put five volumes out of these, of these anthologies from 86 to 94. Some of the Thieves World writers that contributed to that series were Lynn Abbey herself, uh, Christine DeWeese, who only wrote the one story in the first Thieves World volume, C.J. Cherry, Diana Paxson, and Mark Perry, but some other writers, non-Thieves World contributors who wrote in the ElfQuest series were folks like Piers Anthony, Janie Wirtz, who worked with Raymond Feist, uh, Diane Carey, Mercedes Lackey, uh, Len Wein, the comic writer who wrote Swamp Thing, created Swamp Thing. I think he actually created Wolverine, too. Uh, that may be true. Yeah. So um, moving on, there was uh, there's many more. We could talk about Merovingian Nights, uh, which was created by uh, C.J. Sherry. Um, and she spun this off from her novel, The Angel with the Sword. Uh, but she created, there were seven volumes of this shared world anthology from 85 to 91. Uh, and this this was uh, ostensibly, it was science fiction because it took place on an alien planet in the 33rd century. Uh, but it's a planet where technology has sort of been uh, abandoned. Um, the planet itself has been abandoned by spacefaring races and they've kind of re- reduced to like the sword and planet tone of some of like the early pulp uh, science fiction stories like flash cord, any kind of stuff. Um, a lot of, um, I think the most uh, technologically advanced situation was like the, they had uh, like revolvers and guns and stuff like that. Um, but uh, some of the Thieves World writers, and, and oh, by the way, and it was roughly analogous to like Renaissance Venice. So you can see like at the cover of one of them, there's somebody in a gondola uh, on a canal uh, and somebody, uh, rowing around. It is very ornate covers too. They're beautiful covers. Um, but the Thieves World writers who contributed to that one, uh, the usual suspects, Robert Asprin, Lynn Abbey, Janet Morris, Chris Morris. And remember, C.J. Cherry is intimately connected with with this uh, this brotherhood, this fraternity of, of writers. Um, so it's not surprising that she invited her friends to contribute to this. Uh, Andre Norton uh, spun off her Witch World series into Tales of the Witch World. There's only three volumes of that. Um, the only reason I even bring this up is because they had some writers uh, contribute to that that I really that I, I really love. Patricia McKillop, uh, who's one of my favorite writers that uh, just doesn't get enough credit. Uh, she contributed to the uh, Tales from the Witch World anthology series. Uh, her standalone stuff, Chris, is absolutely amazing. Um, Marianne Zimmer Bradley did her own shared universe uh, anthology series, uh, spinning, spinning off her Dark Over uh, setting. Uh, believe it or not, they did 20 volumes of that. My They're, goodness. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, that was really sort of taken over by fan writers. You won't find a lot of um, big name writers in that series. Um, aside from Marion Zimmer Bradley herself and her Diana Paxson, both of whom are 
these role contributors, but Diana Paxson was a um, frequent collaborator and friend of Marion Zimmer Bradley. Um, but the only notable writer that contributed to the Dark Over series that I could find is Mercedes Lackey. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about when we did the show on Mercedes Lackey, because this is sort of where she got her start. Uh, and speaking of Mercedes Lackey, she got in on the fun. She's got 16 volumes of a shared world series. But there's some heavy hitters involved in this one. Um, Diana Paxson and Mickey Zucker Reichert are two of the heaviest that have contributed to Thieves World stories. Um, but other ones, Mercedes Lackey herself wrote, wrote, it, wrote in it. Michelle West and Tanya Huff are both writers who contributed to that Valdemar anthology. Uh, I think the latest one is called Shenanigans, and you can get it on Amazon today if you wanted it. Um, plug, plug, plug. Yeah. I, I haven't actually read any of the Valdemar anthologies. Have you, Chris? I know, I know you're a big Mercedes Lackey fan, but maybe you're not. I am because it's already an established uh, milieu. Uh, I don't generally like people fooling around in somebody else's, you know, backyard like that. So it's not something that I've really jumped into, but um, if it's well-written and well-done, I'm certainly not against it. Sure. Sure. All right. So, um, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, who had the just the one story in Thieves' World in the second volume, Tales from the Vulgar Unicorn, he actually had his own shared universe anthology series. There were six volumes um, that were published from 88 to 90. So again, a very short span of time. Uh, but these are a little different. These are not, I, I say they're a shared world, but they are not anthologies. They're actually novels. They're a series of six novels that were written by four writers, um, some of whom uh, did work on Thieves' World. Robin Wayne Bailey, I think, is the only one, actually. But some of them wrote in other shared world universes, like Charles DeLint. Charles DeLint is a a fantastic urban fantasy writer, Canadian writer. Uh, Really, really good. Um, But, you know, I bring these up because I also have this set, this set of six novels. I have not read them, or at least I don't remember reading them. They don't look like they've been read, and I have no recollection of them. Um, But they've got beautiful covers by the uh, artist Robert Gould, who you'll remember, Chris, did the covers of the um, uh, Elric books, the one with the silver borders from the 1980s. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, same, same artist did those. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, there was a even, – even science fiction had a shared world anthology. And this one I, I wanted to bring up uh, because there's connections to Thieves' World because it was edited by Bill Fawcett and David Drake. David Drake is one of the Thieves' World contributors. Bill Fawcett is married to Jody Lynn Nye who is one of the Thieves' World contributors, and she would actually collaborate with Robert Aspen on some of his novels later in his life. Uh, but this was a science fiction series, um, like a space opera sort of thing. It ran for six volumes from 88 to 91. Gary Gygax, the the dragon in Dungeons & Dragons, presumably. <laughs> John, uh, excuse me, uh, Diane Duane, Larry Niven, Piers Anthony, uh, Catherine Kurtz, who wrote The Camber and... King Kelson books, Darity books. Um, so some really big names that contributed to that otherwise unremarkable series. I I do actually have the first volume of that series, and I did read it when it first came out. Didn't really click with me, so I never tried to collect any of the other volumes, never went back to it. Are you familiar with this one? Uh, no, that is not anything that, uh, that I'm familiar with, but those names yeah. are friggin' out of this world, dude. Yeah, I, I I don't think it really went anywhere. It was a very it was kind of just a blip, 
but uh, they they really had some heavy hitters contributing to that. Um, the next one I want to talk about is uh, the Border Town series, and this one is edited by Terry Windling, Delia Sherman, and Ellen Kushner, and later on Holly Black. Um, it started in 1985. This is one of the earlier ones when the publisher, New American Library wanted to quote, and I quote, this is a quote from Ellen Kushner's site, wanted a thieves world for teenagers. So (laughs) thieves world was not for teenagers for sure. (laughs) No, we should go back and say thieves world is, is there's a lot of adult situations. There's violence and gore and drugs and sex. And really it's just sort of disturbing stuff in it. Uh, And we were teenagers when we read it, but we don't recommend anybody else do that. Yeah, no. Please, parents, do not try this at home. Yeah. The 80s were a different time. They, we didn't have helicopter parents in the 80s. <laughs> Our parents were just happy we were reading instead of, I don't know, doing whatever. Which you your did parents. do, so stop laughing. <laughs> That's why I said your parents, maybe. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, back to Borderlands. <laughs> Or it's so it's sometimes it's called Borderlands, mostly it's called Border Town because it takes place. The setting is um, this dystopian city where Elfland has incurred kind of like moved into it. Elfland has returned, and you've got these post modern, post Tolkien elves in leather jackets with mohawks who ride motorcycles and they're interacting with this dystopian New York City esque culture. Uh, and it really dealt with issues of like disenfranchised youth as manifested in things like gang violence, race relations, miscegenation, um, social organization like class conflict, um, generation gaps, uh, even literary cr- criticism. There's a big influence. 1980s music is a big influence on, uh, on this series as well. Um, Locus Magazine, which is sort of the trade magazine for fantasy science fiction publishing, said, and I quote, that it was a dreamland of rock and roll glamour, punk elves, and alienation raised to high style. So this is definitely a series that has um, its point in time. However, it always seems to be timely. Like you, I could go back to, I've read this one. I can go, there's several volumes. I can go back to this one. I could reread this one quite a bit. Well, with all the people that contributed to it, holy crap, man. Oh, yes. So the only These World contributor is Stephen Bruce. But in addition to Terry Windling, Ellen Kushner, Delia Sherman, and Holly Black, you get Charles DeLint, Emma Bull, Patricia McKillop, Corey Doctorow, Catherine Valenti, uh, Jane Yolen, Neil Gaiman. And some of these people weren't there at the beginning. They were there for the revival that happened in, um, I think it was 2013, when Holly Black spearheaded, or 2011, when she spearheaded that revival. Absolutely influential on a generation of writers who read this and then went off and did their own thing and then kind of came back and contributed to the revival of this. Um, I specifically love the uh, the Neil Gaiman contribution to this. I'm not going to spoil anything. This is when people should actually try to go out and find themselves. Uh, Border Town, fantastic. And Alan Kushner uh, had her own. She's recently, and, and I bring this up because this is fairly recent, where she she wrote a series of books in the mid '80s that started with Swords Point, uh, a melodrama of manners, 
And that was that's that novel is a cult classic, and it features a fantastic character named Richard Saint Viers, who is this fantastic swordsman. He's sort of a like a mercenary for hire. Uh, it takes place in a city that's roughly analogous to. I, I always think about it in terms of like 17th century London, but I think Alan Kushner really means it to be more European, maybe more Italian in in um, description. But it's uh, it's about uh, it's intrigue and romance and duels, and it's got a very queer and diverse character in well set of characters. Uh, whereas the, the the lead character is gay, and he. In the opening scene, he actually kills someone who tries to intimidate his boyfriend. So this is, and this again, this is 1987. So this is really before the acceptance of LGBTQ, the wider acceptance of LGBTQ um, in in culture. It was really accepted in publishing and in literature going back going back that far, but. This I bring this up because I just I love this book so much. It is it created its own genre of she calls it a fantasy of manners, uh, but it's also it's called manner punk because everything is something punk, whether it's steampunk or cyberpunk. Cyberpunk, thank you. But you know the man the fantasy of manners is highlights these. Uh, elaborate hierarchical social structures where protagonists aren't necessarily fighting wizards and armies, but their own neighbors and and peers think Pride and Prejudice meets the Three Musketeers, or Wuthering Heights meets the Prisoner of Zenda. Um, so it's a it's a fantastic setting that has some really great examples. We won't we won't dig into it too much now because that's really not the point. But I bring it up because the setting, which she calls uh, Tremontaine was recently revived in 2015 as a setting for um, four seasons, not books, four seasons of episodes. And there's like 12 to 13 episodes uh, supervised by Ellen Kushner with some really great writers, um, including Karen Lord and Delia Sherman. Um, none of the Thieves World writers are um, involved in that, but uh, they, uh, I think they were originally put out possibly as audible audio dramas which you can get on Audible. Um, but now they're being published is in the digital book format, so you can get that as well. But And last but not least in the shared world phenomenon that we want to discuss is a series called Wild Cards. Uh, Chris, do you know Wild Cards at all? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's George Martin's uh, novelization of comic book characters, basically. Yeah, George Martin, very famous for producing the Beatles in the '60s, would later become a. Wait, am I, I thought you were going to say. Thought you were going to say he was famous for writing fan letters to Marvel. Oh, actually, he did, didn't he? George R. R. Martin. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes. So Chris is exactly right. This is George R. R. Martin's. Um, uh, he he played. He was big into role playing games in the '80s, and he he was playing. I think it was called Superpowers. I'm not really familiar with that role-playing game. I've heard of Champions and Marvel Champions. superheroes, but yeah. I don't. I don't know superpowers, but I'll have to do some research on that. But this was came from his home game, uh, or Superworld. I think it was Superworld, not superpowers. But this came from his home game, and some of the writers that he invited to contribute to the first volume were people that were playing at his table. This and and, and believe me, the list of writers for this uh, anthology series is way too long to go through, but you will recognize all of them. There are, uh, it's a veritable 
who's who of science fiction fantasy writers of the last 30 years. From Daniel Abraham, who wrote The Expanse, one of the co-writers of The Expanse, to Roger Zelazny, who needs no introduction on this podcast. Yeah, it's and you're right, Chris. It's um, it's the, the genre is like a superhero type uh, fiction, where a um, an alien virus mutates people and so, gives some powers, gives some stranger mutations. It's uh, it's actually being optioned as a television show. I think Hulu is who it has got it coming out as a as a series pretty soon. Something else for the the people to get angry at George R.R. R. Martin about because he even though he hasn't put out a Song of Ice and Fire book in a couple of years, he has come out with a couple of new volumes of wild cards. And that's what brings this is, brings me to the fact that this is the longest running shared universe right now. Um, starting in 1987 up until just I think it was just last year is the most recent volume. Um, there have been 30 volumes in the wild card series. Yeah. Well, not to pile on, but civilizations have risen and fallen in the amount of time it's taken between the fifth book and the sixth book. Jesus shit, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, well, that's, that's a whole other conversation we could have for a different show. But uh, so, you know how I told you, I found magic in Ithgar uh, at a used bookstore just last week. Well, Check this out. I also found volume one of Wild Cards in the same bookstore. Oh, hokey smokes, man. Yeah. So I, sh- I guess I should give a, a shout out to that bookstore. And by the way, these books um, are in fantastic condition. I don't generally buy used books because I'm just, I'm a bit of a germaphobe. Well, more than a bit. But uh, but um, these books are, they look brand new, never been read. Magic and Ithgar is obviously pretty old. Um, and it's, you know, the paper's coloring a little bit, but this wildcard edition, it's hardcover. It's a, a shorter wildcard version, smaller version of the hardcover, but it's got everything in it. Uh, doesn't look like it's even, the spine's even been cracked. Um, oh, that's a Dave book right up, right on top right there, man. Yeah. Yeah. One of the fun stories I, uh, and I'll, we'll wrap it up with this, but one of the fun stories about wildcards is that when it was first coming out, uh, a young writer pitched a character and a story to George R.R. R. Martin, and he was turned down by Martin because he really hadn't had the proper writing credits up until then. But he, he encouraged him. He said, you know, keep at it. You might turn into something someday. So that young writer went to D.C., pitched the the character and the series to D.C., and it was later published as uh, Sandman. And, of course, that writer is Neil Gaiman. Yeah, that's it. it's always amazing to me to see the genesis of of people's writing careers and where they take them. And uh, a lot of the times where you hear, well, this publisher turned it down and I've been rejected a hundred times. And finally, it becomes this great, big, huge thing and nana, nana, boo, boo to the people that turned me down. So it's really neat to see how people get their starts and, and hear little interesting tidbits like that. Sure, sure. Well, you know, we can go on and we can talk at great length, greater length about some of these shared world anthology series. Uh, but I do want to bring it back to Thieves World uh, because this, Thieves World is where uh, it all began. You know, it, in the context of the canon of fantasy fiction, um, it's it holds a pretty important place for creating this, this um, subgenre. And I, I think anyone who wants to be familiar with the development of the genre from from that time frame needs to kind of take a look at this um, and you'll enjoy it. there's some really great stuff in there 
Um, we, there could be a conversation about how it stands up uh, to modern social and cultural mores. There's, there's some problematical stuff. And remember, it was, it was written in the, the late 70s and early 80s. So there's some cringy stuff uh, in there. Um, and we'll get to that when we next episode when we start uh, covering the individual stories. But overall, I really enjoyed kind of going back and taking this this deeper look at it. How about you? This is this is called the fantasy canon for several reasons, not the least of which is there's a a group of books that Dave and I dove into at a very impressionable age, and I think a lot of people started well, maybe not as early as us, but I was ten years old in 1980. And it's kind of, to me, this is like being alive when the Beatles hit or Elvis hit or something like that, because it's, you're in the middle of it and it's new and it's exciting and you don't know how big it's going to get or if it's going to be a flash in the pan. And to have uh, Thieves World not only be as excellent as it was at the time, uh, but to have it spin off into so many different things and and either start or further the careers of so many excellent writers is just awesome, man. That's I couldn't have said it better myself. I think uh, we'll, we'll uh, with that we will wrap it up. All right, so. That's it for this episode of the Fantasy Canon Podcast. Join us next time when we will discuss Thieves World, edited by Robert Lynn Asprin. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. This helps us reach more listeners and to do more episodes. Until then, you can join the conversation at www.thefantasycanon.com or send us an email at thefantasycanon at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at the Fantasy Canon, and you can find us on Facebook at the Fantasy Canon page. Thanks for listening, Namarie. Good reading, D. There we go. All right. Today we'll be discussing Thieves' World and the shared universe phenomenon that started in the 1980s. Um, I'm going to try that again. Hold on. Sorry. All right. Um, let's. You, can we just take it from the top? Okay. Welcome to the Fantasy Pan... <laughs> <laughs> take three. <laughs> I told you this was going to be one of those episodes. <laughs> can we just add in the disclaimer that Dave's on drugs and it might be a little wonky? because <laughs> we would have, I, I would say no because we would have to add that to all the other previous episodes because i was on drugs so <laughs> to be, so to like here's the difference um i the only drug i am on is melatonin so i can sleep <laughs> and it's like the most mildest and a couple of tylenol <laughs> <laughs> okay all right let's try this again you ready hmm. yeah let's <clears throat> all go. right there we go